Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. And what Assassins is doing is it's allowing us to peer into that window of American grievance and you know watch these myths through the eyes of our villains instead of our heroes. Mm. So it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. But y'all, I mean, those chord progressions, <laughs> amazing, just amazing. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the musical Assassins, which is probably, I'm going to guess, one of the darkest musicals we've ever covered on the podcast, but I'm still very excited because we have an amazing guest to discuss it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Keila Packett. But it has to be like a waltz. Da, da, da. <laughs> Six Emperor Tyrannus. Oh my gosh. This yeah. musical Very is. Very happy to be here. I'm so. Thank you. Mahalo. Thank you for doing this. Mahalo. Um, thank you for finding me. FYI, that's 100% why Keela is on here because I Instagram stalked him and he was kind enough to say thank you and yes. Uh, we both have the same, we both speak musical theater. It was just meant to be. It, it truly, truly was. And you are a huge, huge Sondheim fan. I am a huge, huge Sondheim fan. Every Sondheim fan feels that they're the biggest Sondheim fan <laughs> and they all have ammunition to back it up, no pun intended. Ooh. Um, so, you know, it started in high school and it's continued on into my old age. And yes, there's just so much to talk about. Where do we begin? Well, let's talk about the fact that you have a history in classical theater um, and are yet still a musical theater nerd, and which means I couldn't love you more. Well, I think the musical theater nerd came first. Talk to me about uh, that. I want to hear your story. How did you fall in love? Well, I I guess I've always loved musicals ever since, you know, my mom put on the VHS tape of Annie or Funny Girl or, you know, <laughs> any of those. And the Disney musicals, obviously. There was just always, um, there was just always that part of me that wanted to stand out and wanted to show off. Look, I can sing these songs too, right? And so, you know, you have that music teacher that, discovers you have a little twinkle in your eye and puts you in in the in the school musical and then I got involved in the church musicals growing up in Texas I'm an army brat so I grew up all over the US and no Europe way. I really started getting involved there with the church theater I played King Wenceslas and King Wenceslas the musical <laughs> and my very first kind of mainstream musical was at a small regional theater called Vive les Arts and he put me in the children's chorus in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And then started like being attracted to like the mainstream songs from, say, Fan of the Opera or Les Mis. And then the rest is history. That's We have very similar stories. I remember my parents uh, chaperoned my older brother's high school trip to New York. And they went and saw Phantom of the Opera. And so they came back with like the double cassette tape. Oh, and, the and double I, cassette tape. Double cassette tape. I just had tape. the highlights. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And I remember sitting 
on the kitchen counter because like we had that big like 90s stereo system on the kitchen counter like looking through the little booklet at the pictures and following along with the lyrics and picturing what on earth they saw and that was really I feel like the beginning of me being obsessed with what was going on in the theater and why hadn't I been there to see it I I also remember my parents because they had seen touring productions of Elizabeth Taylor and Little Foxes. They saw Yul Brenner in his one of his final performances in The King and I. Oh my gosh! Uh, and then they saw Evita, and you know, uh, like just the idea of something like Evita is, is 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 really interesting to a young kid. I'm like, oh, she died. Why was she so famous? And then you listen to the music, um, and that was like early early elementary school. But then when we moved to outside of Washington D.C. in my junior year. I started getting involved in a kind of a community theater group of teenagers. The uh, voice teacher had kind of created this little group at this Presbyterian church. And we did, she cast me in Godspell. And uh, Broadway performer Jose Lana was actually Jesus in that Godspell. You're kidding. Totally. We kind of grew up doing theater together. Yeah. And then we did The Secret Garden and then Carousel. And that's when I met my other friend, Henry, who ended up going to NYU and studied acting. And we had the Sondheim connection. We would like write songs together. And we even performed Pretty Women for a pre-show. And we performed (laughs) Agony. And I didn't even get the humor for Agony. I thought it was like, you know, I was a teenager. I thought I was like in real agony. So I had a lot to learn. (laughs) The best comedy comes from honesty. So there you go. Now, how did you run into Assassins? High school. Yeah. So, you know, when you're Me in too. high school, you're kind of... Because I, I got really into Sweeney Todd and I guess Sunday in the Park with George. But when you're in high school, you're also at this like heightened level where you're kind of looking for that edgy... Mm-hmm. That, that edgy, whether it's a musical or movie, you know, we're kind of like in the goth stage and we're, we're feeling all this angst, right? And so Assassin was like the perfect bullet right i mean it just had that dark comedic edge and then when it's put to music so brilliantly by sondheim and then obviously you know the the book by john weidman it just opens this amazing carnival like world of like wow this 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 music really speaks to me at 14 Uh, right (laughs) no it's so true and i i know i've talked about this on the podcast before but do you remember columbia house or bmi like those catalogs that you'd get and you could pick eight cds and then get two for free if you oh, paid right. full price for one you know like it was some crazy I thing did like that. that i did that i think i got cats and then like <laughs> and then like the best of abba and you know stuff like that i that's oh and maybe a janet jackson something and naturally Carey. but anyway <laughs> yeah come on, yeah, come on that's so funny assassins was 100 percent the result of those catalogs i'm pretty sure i got she loves me. I always have to talk about she loves me on the podcast. Uh, Sunday in the Park with George and Assassins. And I loved it. I wasn't obsessed with the music in the same way that I've been obsessed with other scores, specifically other Sondheim scores. But there was something about Assassins that moved me emotionally so much, in fact, that I remember bringing it up at the dinner table. <laughs> there's there's this specific dinner that I remember And I was sitting on one end of the table and my dad was sitting on the other. And I was so intrigued and moved by the idea of of the final scene where uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and John Wilkes Booth are having this conversation and how it was attempting to reveal 
this underlying current of of emotion percolating underneath this trauma of these traumatic events in history. And so I bring it up at, at dinner and my dad, who lived through the JFK assassination and was a political science major in college, immediately like takes a hard right into conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination. Like, Whoa. we were no longer talking about anything emotional. It was Cuba right. was involved, Jack Ruby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I can just, I can, go ahead. No, no, please. <laughs> well, I can just hear it now. Uh, your mom's saying, honey... Your father and I have come to the conclusion that we don't want you listening to musicals anymore. <laughs> God bless them. They were they were totally willing to have this conversation. But looking back on it now as an adult, it makes me realize that when there are these deep traumatic events that we go through as a country or individually, the hardest thing to do is to process them emotionally. The first thing that we do, or not the first thing, but it, it just seems that it is it is as much a tradition as these events themselves to come up with some sort of conspiracy to explain them away instead of really internalizing and figuring out what on earth was going on, you know? And I think, I think uh, Sondheim and Weidman were really trying to make sense of the assassination of JFK, you know? And I think people Absolutely. of that, gen- that generation, the boomer generation or whatever you want to call it, Everybody knows where they were at that moment, mm-hmm. kind of like 9-11 when I, was, uh, when I had just moved to New York. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure Sandy Hook will be the same for other people. Exactly. Exactly. So reassessing, you know, trying to make sense of it all, I think was, mm-hmm. was also one of the defining reasons why they created this piece. This is a total accident, but the last episode that was released was all about Camelot. And you can't talk about Camelot without talking about the JFK assassination. And now here, like the very next episode is Assassins. I promise I did not do that consciously. But you're exactly right. John Weidman, in talking about writing the book for the show, he says, I was in high school when Kennedy was assassinated, and it was my first real experience of loss. The whole Camelot thing is hard to evoke for somebody who didn't actually live through it, but the connection between people my age and the future that Kennedy seemed to represent was electric and very emotional. I was devastated by his assassination. The notion that that kind of grief, not just national, but international, could be caused by one angry man in a t-shirt with a rifle seemed inexplicable to me. Wow. Totally. And it's like the question of, you know, how could one inconsequential angry man, right, cause such grief and anguish? Mm -hmm. And more importantly, why would he do it? And that's what they wanted to explore in this piece. Why did all of these characters, these nine characters, do what they did? Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's an exploration of their, of their characters. And it's kind of a moment for the audience to see, to see them before they became famous, because of course, nobody had ever heard of <laughs> Sarah J. Moore or Sam Bick or whoever before they, right. before they had committed these atrocious acts. Mm-hmm. And they want the audience to just not necessarily to empathize with them, but to understand that, look at what, what this led up to. There's a series of events, mm-hmm. uh, not only in their lives, but in American history that has led up to each of those, those moments. So. so true. I think that, I think, I can't remember if this is John Weidman or Stephen Sondheim, so forgive me. But You're forgiven. I, <laughs> he wrote, uh, 
we don't ask the audience to sympathize or even empathize with them, which is what you you absolutely just said. We simply present them as something more multidimensional than a bunch of freaks living outside of the American experience. And so if that is the case, if they're if they are more than just these random freaks, then there's something to learn. There's something to gather from their experience in this country as fellow citizens. Of course. I mean, there's a reason why they, they preserved uh, Charlie Gateau's brain. They're did trying they to really? Study. I don't they know did. this. They did. Oh. They, they preserved his brain and his skull. And I think he was excited about it. He wanted to be like a celebrity. Uh, and they wanted to see what, you know, what makes an assassin, for lack of a better term, what makes them do what they do. And so, yeah, his brain is somewhere in a jar. In... We'll have to take a field trip sometime. <laughs> In a the garage owned too. by Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's Fantastic. talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about the creation of the show, uh, because at this point, well, I the wasn't sh- there. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> at this point, 1990, the last Sondheim show that has come out is Into the Woods, which is widely considered maybe his most accessible show. Well, and... I did sing. I did sing. No one is alone at my high school graduation. So. There you go. Did have an impact on me. Case in point. <laughs> I love Into the Woods. I, it's, of course, it's, of course. It's incredible. And I love that he immediately followed that up with his most inaccessible show, Assassin. Great. Totally. Um, <clears throat> now, he and John Weidman had worked together previously on Pacific Overtures. and amazing. when they uh, Another amazing show. And when they were talking about something new to collaborate on, Sondheim remembered being the judge of this musical theater competition. And one of the submissions had been a musical about a Vietnam vet who ends up becoming a presidential assassin by having this like fantastical interaction with John Wilkes Booth. And he didn't like the show, but he liked little pieces of it. And so Mm -hmm. apparently he contacted the creator and was like, hey, I want to do my own sort of spin on this, but it's uh, it's totally different. He gets permission, and he and John Weidman start down this path of creating a show looking at all of the people who either have successfully or unsuccessfully tried to kill the president of the United States. Right. And the, the playwright, his name was Charles Gilbert. He, the oh, thank you. Give, give some credit. <laughs> uh, yes, Charles Gilbert, you are in the canon of inspiration, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and um, and he actually uh, told Steve, he was like, sure, you totally have my permission to do this. I'd love to write the book. And, oh, and Mr. Right. Sondheim was like, you know, oh, that's great, but I will respectfully decline. I already have a book writer. <laughs> Thanks. See ya. We'll see you at the opening night. Click. <laughs> so John Weidman and, and Stephen Sondheim start working on the show. It premieres off-Broadway at Playwright Horizons in 1990 and opens to mixed to negative, but probably more on the negative side of things in terms of reviews. Yeah, I think, uh, who was it? One, um, the New York Times said that, I don't, I don't want to misquote him, but it, it basically said it, it missed its, it missed yeah, the some, aim. <laughs> some crazy like gun pun from Frank right. Rich saying that yes. uh, if they're going to hit the bullseye, they need to aim a little sharper. <laughs> But we love Frank Rich. We love your book, Ghost Light. I read it in like a week. Amazing. Butcher of Broadway. The (laughs) thing also that's really interesting to remember about this time is 
the window in which Assassins first opened is the 47 days that Desert Storm was raging in the in the Gulf War. So for right. those who who may not know, this was like the first Iraq War. And there was this period of time in which the United States was just like pummeling Iraq so that they would get out of Kuwait. I believe I believe the first preview, the very first performance was uh, the day before the first attack on Iraq. So they said the first performance was kind of fine. Everyone was like really into it. And then after that, everyone was like, oh, is this is this too soon? What's Mm -hmm. going on here? Because, I mean, it's a dark show. And it's both critical of the United States, and I find it a little patriotic, to be honest, as well. Of course, because... it's very celebratory, mm-hmm. music-wise, as well. But I think it was just way too much for an audience to really grasp onto, even if it is, you know, a legend like Sondheim. So it quickly folds, like after 70 performances, it doesn't go to Broadway, but it becomes a cult classic for those who love Sondheim and love his repertoire, and immediately starts being done in colleges a lot. Yes, we have to thank Paul Gemignani, the musical director, and Michael Starobin for reorchestrating the musical for the recording. Because during the performances at Playwrights Horizons, there were only three musicians, of which Paul Gemignani oh. was the drummer. And so Michael Starobin said, well, if we're going to do the recording, we might as well do it big time since we didn't get to go to Broadway. So they had it for 33 musicians. And I think that's why wow. the recording is so spectacular is because it just kind of amps up the 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 brilliance of the Americana, the John Philip Sousa, the Stephen Foster, the Aaron Copeland, the Barbershop Copeland, Quartet, yeah. all that stuff, the 70s kind of Carpenter's feel of Unworthy Through really. Love, etc. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, we really have to uh, give props to Gemignani and Starobin for making that recording so special and so timely of that time. Otherwise, it would have just disappeared probably in memory. Yeah, it would have been like a roadshow sort of situation. Which I also saw. I, I've seen, I saw Pacific Overtures at Studio 54 in 2004. I saw Roadshow Aww. in 2008. And I did see Assassins uh, also at Studio 54 in 2004. Let's actually talk about that real quick. They were supposed to have a revival of Assassins. And then, I mean, talk about timely. The Iraq War interrupted the first one, and then uh, 9-11 interrupted the second one. As we'll talk about the show, there is a there is a whole section about a, an assassin hijacking an airplane and trying to crash it into the White House. So you could see how many people would have thought that was a little soon a little to be presenting on a stage in New York City. So it gets uh, postponed. It finally does open. The revival opens in 2004 to, I mean, raves. It couldn't have been more different. I mean, it only won the Tony for. It won a lot. It won. (laughs) It won best revival. It won best director. It won best featured actor. It won best orchestrations. It's interesting that it's one of those. It's interesting that it was also up for revival. That's what I was just going to say. It's like a little shop type of situation where it had never been on Broadway, but the Tonys didn't think that it was a new. It could be considered a new musical. Right. A bit of trivia. It was nominated for a Drama Desk Award in 1991 for Outstanding Musical. Do you know what did win that that year? 91 Drama Desk? Oh, gosh. You're really testing me. I'm going to say Kiss of the Spider Woman. I'll give you a hint. That actually was the following year. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, Not bad. Daisy Egan. Oh, Secret Garden. Yeah. 
Secret Garden won the Best mu- Musical Drama Desk Award? Yep. The wow. uh, It was Assassins and Secret Garden and Will Rogers Follies. Well, look, I, I think they they may have made the right choice there. Yeah, can't go wrong with Secret Garden. That's yeah. a whole other podcast. It is. It's a whole other episode. <laughs> I can't wait, but it's, it's right? kind of perfect. Okay, cool. cool. So you saw it. What did you yes. think? Were you moved? Were you angered? Because I, the show purposefully does not come to a moral conclusion. It's meant to make you go to dessert afterward and talk about it. Uh, well, let's see. Any, anytime I, you see a Sondheim show, there is an energy in the room, in the theater. Uh, the first Sondheim show I ever saw was, uh, well, professional, like on Broadway, was the revival of Follies. That was in 2001, hmm. directed by Matthew Workus and... Like when when there's applause at a Sondheim show, it's literally like a bomb going off because it's just so <laughs> rapturous and so loud. So just to be there, to, to just to be in the audience for Assassin was just kind of like, look what we've done, look what we've been through, y'all, and now we're finally here and we're all in it together. And it's just like, look, you know, we did this together, right? Because obviously, wow. like theater's a collaborative collaborative moment. So. Yeah, I mean, long story short, it was incredible. I think Michael Cerveris as John Wilkes Booth was incredibly palpable and emotional. And I think Neil Patrick Harris has done a lot of Broadway work. And I think that was really like his best, in my opinion. It just fit Mm -hmm. him so perfectly. The scene work between Becky and Baker Baker. and Mary Catherine Mm -hmm. Garrison. One of my biggest takeaways from that was the non-musical parts of, of that production because the music is so ingrained in my head and I think you, you listen to the soundtrack constantly, but we don't get to see the play. We don't get to see John Weidman's book. And when we do, right. we see how brilliant Weidman's work is and how he how he kind of weaves this tapestry because it's not linear. You know, these no. these it's, are characters at that best, are... It's a re- it feels like a review in many, many ways. Right, right. And they talk about that because at Pacific Overtures, it's kind of like, okay, this event happened and this event happened sequentially. But in Assassins, it's like a collage and it's just patchwork of all of these characters coming together and interacting with each other as ghosts. Are they ghosts? Are they a figment of their imagination? Mm-hmm. And so to see, to see that book work done so well so like strongly like threading all those that music together was was really really wonderful i wish i could have seen it more than once but as you know broadway ain't cheap (laughs) y'all she's expensive oh and uh i have an annie golden story but i can save that for later or when when do you want yeah save it for later later because it's nothing um, it's nothing big but it is it's cute look she is adorable and Mm -hmm. doesn't age somehow (laughs) no She sounds exactly the same in hair as she does in Assassins. Insane, that Annie Golden. All right, let's talk through the show. One of the hallmarks of a musical theater podcast is that we go through the show and kind of point out the emotional and historical content of it. One of the fun things about this show is that we've got a 90 no people, 90 minute no intermission. That makes me happy. Go to the bathroom before. Right, fair enough. What I'm trying to tell you all is go to the bathroom now before we start. Um, may I use the restroom? Please, can by we, all means. Can we pause here for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Just... Okay, we're back. Okay, we're back. Uh, the show takes place at a carnival shooting gallery. Like one of those, like at Frontierland, at Disneyland, or or even when you shoot the water in the clown's mouth, right? Something, Some sort of game uh, involving a gun. Which 
That's kind of disturbing now that I think about it. There I are loved, many. There are many. I loved Duck Hunt when I was little. <laughs> Anything where you got to like shoot a gun. And I'm I'm not like a huge gun fan, but I, it is really kind of ingrained in our culture. Well, you kind of it's like a sense, it's like a false sense of power that you have, you know. Mm. Every every kid wants a BB gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every kid wants a chance to step up and prove, right? Yeah. Prove that they have muscle. So true. And there's no easier way to have muscle than to let a little machine do it for you. The show begins with this character named the proprietor, and he seems to be like the carnival barker, if you will, the one who's enticing all of these different characters to come into the shooting gallery and uh, try their hand at killing a president. <clears throat> now, are we singing the show as we talk about if it? If you would we... like. <laughs> hey, pal, feeling blue. what i love about sondheim's score here is that every song is an ode or an homage to a very specific style of american music so in this big opener which is called everybody's got the right the musical style that he's pulling from is the tradition of musical comedy Everybody's got the right to be. So you've got that musical style that is based in history, but then he's he does something really smart by creating a lyric that is almost what we believe in this country. The lyric is everybody's got the right to be happy, which feels good when you hear it, especially with that musical comedy melody. You're like, yeah, that's right. We do. But then you step back and you're like, no, that's not what we've been saying at all. From the beginning of the country, it's we have the right to pursue happiness. Right. Being right. happy. The There's a difference. Being happy is a whole other thing and is kind of up to you, to be perfectly honest. But a Free country. The, the, <laughs> but the equity to pursue happiness, that is, that is the ideal. And so what the proprietor is doing is kind of taking an American dream and twisting it in a way that I think preys on all of these people's insecurities in different ways. Maybe they uh, they feel insignificant, unseen, unrequited love, whatever it is, he's telling them, you should be happy and this will be the quickest way to do it. Well, wow. Right, and this will make you happy because... The government has not made you happy. And so sure. that song, Everybody's Got the Right, is what can happen when the government is blamed for standing in the way. Uh, you Interesting. Know, we, could, Interesting. We, could go on, we, could, we could go on and on. We could talk about the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I'm sure you were going to bring that up later. But yeah, yeah. it's this whole, like, there is a difference between the right to the pursuit of happiness or the right to be happy. And so... That's how we begin this musical, y'all. <laughs> like, and then <laughs> well, you're and supposed right to away, clap at the end. We're right. And right away, it's, you know, hey, pal, feeling blue, don't know what to do. Come on and shoot a president is like literally in the first minute of Eek. the show. And so the audience is like, wait, what? Shocked. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Nervous laughter. And I think regardless of if it's nervous laughter, we are given permission at right at the beginning to laugh because spoiler alert the show is hilarious it's funny especially those book scenes man there are some really funny parts of this show that you would think should not be funny at all yep 
Um, so it's a really complex opening number. It's funny because the characters, they don't know they're deranged. They're, they're so committed into who they are. <laughs> you know, when we're crazy, we don't know that we're crazy. We think that we're doing the right thing. Sure. Right? Yep. And that's Just why, like those princes in sense. agony. <laughs> right. That's why your performance in high school was, was spot on perfection. It was it was literally <laughs> agony for anyone that knew or loved Into the Woods. Like you missed the humor completely. The other thing that's really interesting about this number and reveals something very unique about the show is that all of these different assassins come from all different parts of American history. So you've got people dressed in Victorian garb right next to people in 70s groovy gear, right next to people uh, in white T-shirts and jeans. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we've got the first one, 1865, all the way up to 1981. With Reagan, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe consciously or subconsciously, you see that this is, as messed up as it sounds, an American tradition. Mm. Because it's not just something yeah. that happened once. You can see simply by costuming there in the theater. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for quite a long time. Well, and I think that's kind of the paradox there, isn't it? Because American has this um, this free country mentality, this uh, American dream, which uh, hopefully means, you know, everybody's equal. We have justice. You know, everybody has rights. It doesn't necessarily mean everybody has is going to be individually wealthy, uh, mm-hmm. And and of course, the idea of the American dream meant something very different a hundred years ago. But what the paradox is in America is the ability to have this freedom. And some people forget that there is a code of conduct there. There is there are rights and there are rules. And you know, it's not it's not nice to kill people. But in America, you feel that you have the freedom to do this, and you feel like you have this way of making a statement. And unfortunately, it's through violence. And we've seen that again and again and again, unfortunately, with mass shootings and, uh, you know, police brutality and, you know, you know, race rights, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on. I know we're not, we're not here to talk about that. But unfortunately, uh, America's paradox is there has been freedom and uh, there has been a very fragile system which cannot contain this freedom, this this anarchy that's kind of like bursting at the seams. Hmm. Uh, we're not rational people, unfortunately. It'd be great if we all did, if we all, you know, if we all went to the theater and, and sat down at eight o'clock and, and shut up and, you know, watched something, you know, it's like that, that like social contract. It's different for everybody. Yeah. One of the true hallmarks of our country is individuality. From the beginning, this flexing of I'm not some dandy from the UK. I am a frontierman in America and you can't make me pay taxes. You know, like that sort of individualism has been celebrated for so long. But it, like you said, it comes with consequences where one of the benefits of conformity is safety. Yeah. And that balance of individualism versus conformity is something that we've experienced just recently in the pandemic over whether or not you're going to freaking wear a mask. Of course, of course. And here in Assassins, it's just kind of blown up to an even more extreme level of we all get to vote for a president, but if you don't like it, can you take him out? Right, exactly. And 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 this, and I think what's cool about Assassins is that it will always be contemporary. Yeah. 
but luckily we've got great music. Thank goodness we got Sondheim to take us through it. <laughs> exactly. Which, speaking of, the next number is a fantastic number. We introduce a character named the Balladeer. And what Sondheim said about the Balladeer is that our understanding of American history is received. You know, up until the invention of movies, it was largely received orally through like stories and folk songs. So they created this character of the balladeer to come in and represent that more simplistic side of historic storytelling. So he comes in and and begins singing this folk song, which is called the Ballad of Booth. They really treat John Wilkes Booth in this show as like the father, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. father of all the assassins. So the this folk song that the balladeer sings is all about, you know, why did you do this, Johnny? You know, what, were you angry or did you get some bad reviews as an actor and so then you felt like you needed to take out Lincoln? Whatever it is, it's all toward the simplistic side of how we view John Wilkes Booth. He is the grandfather of, of all the assassins yet to come. Right, right, right. At, at 27 years old. Like, I forget that John Wilkes Booth was only 27. Well, crazy. I mean, he was just a frustrated actor. I mean, look at his, <laughs> who was his, his Nothing worse. His, Am I right? His brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the Booth family is, is still around. I mean, there's the Booth Theater in, on Broadway. Like the Booth name is still around in the stars. One of the other things that the balladeer sings is that, you know, Lincoln was not a saint, but m- maybe because he killed him, he turned him into one. Well, right. It's like kind of how do we, again, how can we really know we only get one side of the story, right? Like how mm-hmm. can we really understand the complexity of these people in power? Same with JFK. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Lincoln was shot. So he's, he's, he's like the mo- one of the most famous presidents. JFK was shot. He's one of the most famous presidents. Were they good at being presidential? I, I think probably. But even with Lincoln, the the thing that you you yelled out right at the top of the show, um, uh, sick semper oh, tyrannis, the yeah. tyrant is dead. The tyrant, you know, we've slain the tyrant. John Wilkes Booth thought of Lincoln as a tyrant because he seemed to assert a lot of unrighteous authority or mm. even tyrannical authority, according to him, over people who he didn't agree with. Yeah, and that was the reason why he wanted to take him out. And as the balladeer kind of wraps up his song we join john wilkes booth in the process of essentially dying in a barn that's Mm -hmm. surrounded by soldiers and he has this very melancholy mourning type of song that he sings it's one of my favorite parts of the whole whole song because it's it's somber it is it's incredibly somber at the same time Um, the line from this portion of the song that really sticks out to me especially now is booth keeps singing the country isn't what it was yeah beautiful. he he keeps looking nostalgically at the past saying we've been through a civil war and so the country will never be what it was before that civil war and once again i know that we're not meant to have empathy for these characters that wasn't like the purpose in writing that but you by listening to him say that i both understand what he's saying and judge him a little bit for it if i'm being totally honest because it's like yeah you're right the country isn't going to be the same and there are a lot of people particularly those people of color who are very grateful that it's never going to be the same Mm -hmm. you know and then that same sort of understanding and clarity 
can then be applied to, uh, in in my opinion, some of the some of the opinions about make America great again. You know, like it's this isn't this isn't something that's new and it's not something that's easily defined. But when it's put in art like this, I, I, I find both the understanding and the clarity. It's amazing. Well said. Thank you. You know, we may not empathize, but we can understand what he's going through. Just about understanding instead of just blowing it off as like, well, he's just an assassin. He's just crazy. Yeah. Which I'm sure he's a little bit crazy. I mean, most actors are. Right. I mean, he <laughs> he shot the president and then jumped on stage and had his moment of fame, and uh, you know, and the rest is history. The rest is history. Right after the Ballad of Booth, we see all of the uh, assassins interacting together. They're kind of in this, I don't want to say purgatory, but this limbo (laughs) sort of area. And all of this writing, like we said before, is very clever. But we also get to see how each, each of them come from such different backgrounds and are in such different emotional states as well. Particularly Giuseppe Sangara, who is an Italian immigrant, keeps moaning uh, people will be talking, and then he'll just moan from this horrible, horrible stomach pain. And finally, John Wilkes Booth is like, dude, you need to do something about this. And Zangara says he has. He stopped drinking. He's moved to Miami. He got his appendix taken out. Nothing works. No good. And Booth finally says, well, how have you tried killing Franklin D. Roosevelt? And he's like, is that going to help? <laughs> um, <laughs> once again, hilarious and dark and wrong, but also launches us into this next little segment, which is called How I Saved Roosevelt. And it's looking at this uh, attempted assassination of Franklin Roosevelt by Zangara. Now, I believe this song is very John Philip Sousa, right? Very Stars and Stripes Forever. Mm -hmm. This is 100% real. There were five different people who came forward to the media when... Zangara tried to shoot Roosevelt and claimed that they were the person who saved Roosevelt. That need for celebrity from these five different people, all while singing this, you know, very uh, patriotic march, Mm -hmm. is then counterpointed with Zangara, who's now sitting in the electric chair for the attempted assassination. And he's singing a a Tarantella. Mm -hmm. And he did did kill the mayor. Oh, did he kill the mayor? Thank you. He ended up killing the mayor, Cernak. Oh, I didn't remember that. And the Tarantella is a very Italian song. So you've got musically this counterpoint of the march and now this very Italian, Mm -hmm. um, Italian song, which is very representative of the fact that Zangara felt that he was ignored as an American immigrant. Yes. And that he... He was treated as an immigrant and not an American. Oof. Powerful. Yeah. He says, um, you know... I'm American, American nothing. Yeah, he's pissed. And he hits a high A when he's electrocuted. When he's electrocuted, as anyone should. (laughs) Something else that I also found interesting is that when Zangara was actually put to death, one of the things he complained about was there weren't any cameras. Right, right. So not only are these... photographers. Yeah, exactly. So not only are... You know, the five people looking for their celebrity by saving Roosevelt, he's also looking for a little bit of fame in himself by trying to kill Roosevelt. They're really not that different, emotionally speaking. After that, we go to a scene with Leon 
Oh, I always forget how to say his name. Jolgosh. Jolgosh. Another immigrant who is a worker in a in a like a glass bottle factory. I mean, it is ter- there are terrible working conditions. It's just insane the things that he says that he goes through as a worker in the, in this factory. And so he became very interested in the anarchist Emma Goldman, which if I could ask Emma Goldman anything, it would be, did you have any idea you would end up in two different musicals in musical theater history? <laughs> assassins and ragtime folks i mean hello it's pretty impressive (laughs) batting a thousand um right apparently she actually knew joel gosh yes they had interactions yeah they they had been known to talk and so john weidman has created this you know fictional meeting where he is kind of in love with her and she shows him kindness uh but encourages him to fight for social justice the, uh, there's a quote, an Emma Goldman quote, that is, the most violent element in society is ignorance. Ooh. Right? Emma. So, again, it's like how this whole system is just so fragile. This anarchy mm-hmm. is just building. And, uh, and and then again, on a different on a different level, if you don't know your facts, you may be violent for no reason. I mean, it kind of proves her point. Mm-hmm. Because as much as I feel for uh, Jolgosh, there's probably a little bit of ignorance on his side, too, mm-hmm. in thinking that by killing a president, you're going to make any sort of meaningful change. Definitely. And it, 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 again, it's hard when you come to America as an immigrant and you're expecting so much. Right. And nothing, you know, you know there's so many obstacles in your way. Uh, at the same time, that's the paradox. America is still putting you in a better setting having ideals means you may lack in realism Mm. sure that's kind of the definition of ideals is that nothing is ever really ideal Mm -hmm. but we (laughs) but we hold on to them because i guess we're crazy this is definitely my favorite number the uh, gun song and the ballad of joel gosh uh i think are so just entertaining yeah in, in in the sadness the gun song is referencing another great American musical tradition, which is barbershop quartet. But instead of singing about light or rose and the music man, they're singing about their guns. <laughs> you got these three guys. And plus, all you have to do is move your little finger. Yep. You were not kidding about singing this whole song, and I'm so grateful. I mean, we have to give the you audience sound some great. Context. By the way, can we just set, can we put that out there? I fantastic. would like to perform every every character from this musical, <laughs> if you'll let me. <laughs> but you got you got the three guys, and then you got Sarah Jane Moore, who uh, is a total hot mess, carries Lots. around a big old purse at all times, and can never remember how to fire a gun or where she put it. <laughs> and I think uh, one of the most arresting parts of this, no pun intended, <laughs> one of the most uh, arresting parts of this musical is in this song... When Charles Gateau comes in and says, what a wonderful, it's a gun, what a versatile invention. First of all, when you have a gun, he points the gun to the audience. Click. Everybody pays attention. And I think Sondheim mm. and Weidman, like, you know, they were like salivating at that moment because, you know, I don't, I don't think many musicals did that to an no, audience. No, you don't point your gun at the audience. Right. It's so unnerving. Yeah. And it's yet, rude. and then you follow it up with everybody paying attention. Good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but, so that that was definitely uh, 
a very galvanizing moment. You know, regardless of what you think about gun rights in in the country or how we should regulate them or if they should be regulated, the fact is, is that we are the king of guns. Um, I have this little chart here in front of me from the BBC. It's called the Top 10 Civilian Gun Owning Countries. And it's from a, a survey called Small Arms Survey from 2018. It's firearms per 100 residents. I'll put this on our Instagram post. The U.S. has 120.5 guns per 100 residents. That's over one gun per resident. Wow. The next country is Yemen, which has 52. Mm, there's uh, a little That's, imbalance there. Yeah. Like I said, regardless of what you think we should do with the guns, it's undeniable that we have the most, and that comes with consequences. Mm -hmm. Wow. Hence the gun song. After the gun song, we have the Ballad of Sholgosh. We, of course, met him via Emma Goldman. And now he has his own song, The Balladeer Comes Back. And and this folk song is very Aaron Copeland. You know, some of those traditions in our um, American orchestral music. And the whole idea behind this song is that the American dream is to get to the front of the line. That no matter where you may be, eventually you will get to the front of the line. And the irony there is that Jolgosh shot and killed President William McKinley by waiting in line to shake his hand. And eventually he got to the front of the line and then just shot him. Oh, Sondheim and your puns. I mean, how do they come up with these things? They're just... That's brilliant. Brilliant. Incredible. Yeah, I I, I just love it. I, I mean, I love the whole that you, the balladeer has to take a really deep breath because he's like, right? Can you do it? Full of music by the Tower of Light between the Fountain of Abundance and the Court of Lilies of the Great Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, and the orchestration. I need everybody to go back and listen to the song. And, and when he after he sings in Buffalo, you hear like the violin, the fiddle go, and it's so great. It's just so American, and and, and I love that. that. Stephen Foster, Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Loves it. Great song that gives way to a monologue now by uh, Samuel Bick. It's this dude, he's dressed in a Santa suit. He looks like maybe a a bad mall Santa Claus. And he's talking into like a recorder, cassette tapes. Oh, what are those? (laughs) For those who don't know, (laughs) rewind the episode and listen to me talking about the Phantom of the Opera cassette tapes. And he's creating a cassette tape for his idol, Leonard Bernstein. Not making this up. This is real. True story, folks. He was obsessed with Leonard Bernstein. This guy's certifiable. Like he's... Deranged lunatic? Is that what you meant? Thank you. Thank you. I didn't want to be uh, mean, but I guess you call it like you see it. (laughs) Sambic was a deranged lunatic. And from what I understand from Weidman is that he was the hardest one to find anything about. There was very, very little information about him, and all that he was able to get, he had to like comb through newspaper articles to even find stuff about him. And for those that don't know, he made an attempt to hijack a plane and assassinate uh, Nixon 
in the yeah. White House. I think that this is probably the story in 1990. People were like, who's this guy? How is this relevant? And then post-2001, we're like, is this maybe the most important part of the show? It's amazing how history and time can change different elements of the show. What he was saying to Leonard Bernstein is that he should compose more love songs because it will make people more compassionate and it will just make people less angry. (laughs) As he's screaming at him. Lenny! Because it was Mario Cantone who I'm obsessed with. Yes, of course. In Mario the, was I mean, brilliant. he's fantastic. He has brilliant. vocal cords that are probably hamburger meat yes. at this point. But like, You should see Mario do his Carol Channing impression. It's, it's quite... Oh, there are videos. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> that gives way to probably the, the most popular song from Assassins, which is called Unworthy of Your Love. And it sounds... Like a beautiful folk pop song that Stephen Schwartz would have written in the 70s for Pippin. Or or um, Karen Carpenter. Yeah, totally. Totally Carpenters. It's being written by John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in order to win the love of one Miss Jodie Foster, two-time Academy Award winning actor. Like, I forget what a crazy life she has led. Yes, there are stalkers out there, folks. Don't forget, the word fan comes from fanatic. Ooh, good point. (laughs) Gosh dang it. They're out there. They are out there. He had seen her in Taxi Driver, and he feels this need to prove his love. And so in the musical, he's he's like crafting this song. Um, He's interrupted by Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who similarly tried to kill someone, not Reagan, Gerald Ford, in order to promote the ideologies of one Mr. Charlie Manson, mass murderer, responsible for stabbing Sharon Tate, cult leader. She was so obsessed with him, essentially thinks that he's the son of God. So these two individuals, these two assassins, sing this beautiful love song that when you listen to the lyrics, uh, it gets progressively more and more creepy. Also, Sondheim comments about how Hinckley, yes, he was a bit deranged, but he had kind of an innocent obsession with Jodie Foster, right? And mm. he he wrote this simple love song for her. But Squeaky had a much darker, a much more experienced relationship uh, with with uh, violence Manson. at the very yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's like these two different people with different experiences to violence. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What is something that she says, something about... Tell me, take my blood and my body. Yes, take my yeah. blood and my body. And you're oh like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Let me feel fire. Let me drink poison. Tell me to tear my heart in two. Yeah, That's and Annie Golden still can sing it like it's okay so sing. annie golden was the original <laughs> frank mills Lynette. in hair oh, yes in hair and then she uh originated this role yes. off broadway in 1990 reluctant. was she really she was reluctant she was reluctant to, to accept this role because she was like kind of a a cool hippie that was like her vibe that was like what she was known for mm-hmm. and she didn't want to really be known for like this darker violent person mm. and then her agent was like all right well if you don't want to work with Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman I'll just, we'll just say you're gonna pass and she's like oh wait 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 okay. sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
yeah, for sure. For those who still don't know her, but maybe have watched Orange is the New Black, she was one of the inmates, the one that Norma, that didn't ever talk. She only like communicated That's right. by writing. That's right. Uh, but yeah. she was, a, they did have her sing like at the end of season two or something oh, like that. She's one of those actresses that's not a household name, mm-hmm. but uh, she's incredibly gifted and quirky and a character actress mm-hmm. and has had a, has had real longevity. She was also in The Full Monty on yeah. Broadway. It's a woman's world. Yeah, I saw that three times. Did you? I did. From I different vantage points? <laughs> obsessed with that. Well, I saw it in the front row the first time and I did see The Full Monty. Attaboy. And then I saw it again, <laughs> over and over again. And then when I got to meet Annie Golden in the subway ride, we rode all the way to Brooklyn. She was still living with her parents. Wait, hold on. Okay, so is this your Annie Golden story? This is my Annie Golden story. I saw something else. I think I had seen, I can't remember what it was. I had seen a musical and I was coming home and she was also coming home. I, I lived in uh, Clinton Hill at the time which was uh, you take the C train all the way through Brooklyn into like Fort Greene and Clinton Hill. And it's probably like a 45 minute subway ride. And she lived down like near Bensonhurst, which is probably an hour ride on the subway. And she was still living with her parents. Not that it's like a bad thing. I think she was just living with her parents. That's and so from cool. 40, from 42nd Street all the way down to Wall Street, which was about 25 minutes, we sat next to each other. And I showed her the musical that I saw and we went through it and she was like, oh, that's my friend. Oh, I love her. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, we sat, you know, uh, knee to knee on the train that's for at least 25 minutes. And she's just so down to earth and so adorable. cool. And I was, yeah, so that's my Annie Golden story. She's, How cute. A tr- yeah, yeah. All right. After Unworthy of Your Love, we get a really great scene between Sarah Jane Moore and Gateau, which we haven't even talked about. And uh, who is like the eternal optimist in this show. He, in kind of a creepy way, is just is like so energetic and happy about life. That gives way to his song, Charles Gateau's song called Ballad of Gateau. And, and, it's and a good one. it follows the tradition of like a, a revival spiritual type song. Mm-hmm. Who did he kill? I forget. He killed Garfield. Yeah. James yeah. Garfield. Uh, James Garfield. Yeah. Yeah, in 1881, and then and then he died in 82. He kind of went through all of these different occupations as a human being. He was an attorney. He was an author. He was a preacher. And his next big goal was he wanted to be the next ambassador to France. France, right. And he was so upset that that wasn't going to happen that he decided to take out the president. And so yeah. he, he kills James Garfield and Sondheim has written him this song where he literally gets to cakewalk up the steps to then be hung, uh, singing, I'm going to my lordy. I am going to the lordy. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Uh, I'm so glad I'm going to the lordy. I'm so glad I'm going to the lordy, lordy. Glory, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, which seems kind of silly. But these were actually taken from Gitto's personal records. It was a poem that, they, they that he thought lyrics, that yeah. children were going to sing in yep. his honor. I had seen, I saw Dennis O'Hare, brilliant Dennis O'Hare do it. Has he ever Broadway. not been brilliant? What I an mean, incredible I, performer. Oh my God. I, I saw him in Take Me Out, which he won the Tony for. But I also saw Jonathan Hadari, who originated the role at Playwrights mm. of Guiteau. I saw Jonathan Hadari in the first national tour of Angels in America. He played Roy Cohn. 
He played Roy Cohn. He played Roy Cohn. This was I was just I was in college. It was like 1996 in Lincoln, Nebraska. There were picketers outside the lead center. I mean, it was just like an event. Oh my god. And to this day, his performance as Roy Cohn is one of the top performances I've seen live. That's so cool. Yeah. Good for him. Say his name one more time. Brilliant. Jonathan Hadari. In the original. That's so cool. I'm glad you shared that. I will share with you that my connection to Roy Cohn is an insane play that I did in Los Angeles in which I played the dancing, nonverbal version of who Roy Cohn wished he could have been. Why did I miss this? How did I miss this? (laughs) They had me in my underwear. It was a bizarre little show. Well, Roy would have loved that. I'm sure. (laughs) Would have loved, loved that performance. And then probably would have (laughs) taken me out like assassin style afterward. After Ballad of Gateau, which ends with his, uh, uh, his hanging... We get the funniest scene in the entire show. It's Sarah Jane and Squeaky both trying to kill Gerald Ford because their assassinations were both attempts on Gerald Ford. Neither were successful, but they were like only 17 days apart from each other. And what's incredible is Gerald Ford still decided to go out into public after those 17 days, after having two attempts on his life. I mean, it was the 70s. Come on, like, come on, like. Everything was a little looser. The hair was longer. The the assassinations were were closer together. (laughs) Um, And so John Weidman very cleverly has made their attempts at the same time in this scene. They're both messes. Sarah Jane Moore has accidentally killed her dog on the way to the assassination. And... And Squeaky is like, you brought your dog to an assassination. And, and, and Sarah Jane goes, well, what was I supposed to do? Leave him in the car? <laughs> it's so bonkers. She drops the bullets. Doesn't she throw bullets at him and says, she th- Well, <laughs> She drops the bullets. In comes Gerald Ford himself. And like there are these two women on the ground trying to find bullets. And so being the gentleman he is, he gets on the ground too and starts looking for the bullet that was meant to kill him. And he picks it up and gives it to them and then leaves. And then they they both try to shoot him as he goes. And it's a total mess. It's ridiculous and 100% hilarious. You know, these little respites of fun in between all of this very intense stuff that's happening for the audience. Because like, again, like he said, it's 90 minutes, no intermission. Mm -hmm. You're, You're being faced with... Uh, some very uncomfortable moments. And so these in-between moments that John Wyman has so brilliantly written uh, are kind of a a breath of fresh air. Well, and I, it's a, and I think that's there why... Might be a hint, there might be a hint of gunpowder in that fresh air, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's the kind that smells good. Yeah. It's why it works so well as a review, though, is because it would be impossible to write, I think, a traditional narrative with this idea in mind. You need the rise and fall of these different production numbers with the dark and darkly comedic and silly tone of these different scenes. Otherwise, it's just not going to be a pleasurable evening at the theater. And that's what we want, pleasurable moments in the theater. I mean, sometimes I do. Most of the time I don't. I'm not there for the escapism of it. I'm there to to dig deep and to, you know, have some type of cathartic, enlightening Absolutely. Feeling. I I completely agree. I will also say, however, that I tried to watch this show on Amazon called Them. Have you watched it? I have it not yet. It's on my list. It looks freaky. 
Yeah, <laughs> and I'm not I'm not turned off by freaky at all, nor am I turned off by uh, discomfort. I can take it. That show is almost trauma porn. Oh, wow. I feel like that show is what Assassins could have been if mm. it wasn't for these, like, hills and valleys. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel really guilty to say that because it's about the suffering of uh, black people in suburbia. So maybe I don't even get to have an opinion on it. But mm-hmm. that was my experience. Wow. Well, I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. Watch it and then let me know what you think. I'm really interested. Cool. After that scene, once again, we have introduced the balladeer who's offering kind of a hopeful, simplistic view of these different situations. And that really comes to a head in the next number, which is called Another National Anthem, where you you basically have the assassins versus the balladeer. He's trying to maybe be moralistic, and they are shooting him down, pardon the pun, at every chance they get <laughs> to say... This dream of yours that you say is for everyone isn't true because it's not working for us. And another thing which is also very shocking for the audience is that the stage goes dark and then the stage, the lights come up and then we find ourselves in the Texas Book Depository Mm. and we see the figure of Lee Harvey Oswald and the audience almost has forgotten all about Oswald Mm. by this point and they're kind of really shocked to see, oh my goodness, like their heart really started to pound because we all know what's about to happen. Uh, I have it, chills Obviously right it was trem- Yeah, obviously it was chilling to like, to see the footage that we've seen of JFK and Jackie and in the car there in Dallas, but it's also chilling to see it from the point of view of the actual criminal. Originally in 1990, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was his own character. And what I think is so brilliant is in 2004, they had the balladeer turn into Lee Harvey Oswald. I just think that's so, so smart, specifically coming out of another national anthem. It's almost like their voices have overtaken. And now we're left with this lone assassin, right? This guy who is at rock bottom he thinks that he's going to commit suicide until john wilkes booth appears followed by all of the other assassins who say no 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 your name deserves to be on the walls of history just like ours and uh by doing this our lives will have meant more as well because you're like carrying on our tradition in some weird way Mm. it's pretty powerful stuff yeah it's a big one The other really incredible thing about the 2004 revival is that when Lee Harvey Oswald makes the decision to then shoot JFK, you know, he's so synonymous with that white T-shirt. After he shoots, he turns around and in an act of like projection genius, they project that footage of JFK being assassinated on his white shirt live for everybody in the audience. At that time, uh, um, coup de théâtre, as they call it, mm. had not really been experimented much. You know, that was kind of like, oh, the Europeans are, are doing like video projections and stuff like that. So mm. that was a very definitely a palpable moment as well. After the assassination of JFK, there's a song that isn't always done in the show called Something Broke, in which we see different vignettes of quote-unquote regular Americans who express what it feels like to receive the information that your president has been shot. 
It wasn't written until the London premiere at the Donmar Warehouse, uh, directed by Sam Mendes, uh, who suggested... Yeah, heard of him. He suggested, you know, I feel like there's a song missing. I feel like we're not getting the perspective of those people that were indirectly affected, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's when they wrote this this song, Something Broke, because it's um, giving a voice to, you know, where were you? I remember my aunt... It's funny because my dad, my parent, my dad and my aunt, they were in Lincoln, Nebraska. My dad was in, he was, he was a sophomore. I think he was in English class. And my aunt said that day she was sick and she had stayed home and was watching it. Wow. So, you know, everyone's experience is different. And we always remember that. And I think that's why this, this piece, which I think some people could take it or leave it. I feel like it's giving the audience a breath. Mm-hmm. Um to kind of collect themselves and reassess what's happened. But in some cases, do they need that? <laughs> I mean, let's just, let's just barrel through it. Sure. You know? So I think Sondheim and, and, and Weidman, they, they, they appreciate the piece and they want it. They want it to be a part of it. The most poignant the part of this song for me is the fleeting nature of it because they say over and over again, it's just a moment. It's mm-hmm. just a a brief moment, but in that moment, you feel like something broke. And Mm -hmm. I know that that is what I feel like collectively we're all experiencing with all of these mass shootings, is that you hear about it, and for a brief moment you go, oh, my heart's broken again, Mm -hmm. but then you have to move on. Yep. And and unfortunately, that kind of gives way to the pattern, the cycle of behavior that just keeps repeating itself. It is. It's sad. And this is when the sadness really starts to seep in. Oh, really you're so right. Sense. Because the, I think the, the, really the, the impetus of something broke is like that collective grievance. Mm-hmm. And I see, uh, especially now when we're talking about, let's say, you know, the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, there's like a collective sadness there yeah. that we... Uh, we can't we can't deny and everybody wants there to be hope and yes everybody wants there to be progress but what assassins can do in the future because this is always going to be a contemporary piece is it will allow us to sit and grieve together Mm. you know the old greek cathartic point of theater to begin with is to like collectively as an audience you know as a community hold up the mirror to society and comment on it That's just so important. I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking about how isolated so many of us have felt over the past year and a half. And one of the things we need so desperately to move through it is to grieve together, to experience things together. And in many ways, that has been taken away from us from uh, from the pandemic, whether it's not being able to attend church or not being able to attend the theater, whatever your ritual of choice may be. It, it just proves to me how essential those moments of gathering are. Totally. That just leaves us with the, with the last little reprise of Everybody's Got the Right. What I'm left with after this show is sadness, if I'm being totally honest. Mm-hmm. And when you said mm-hmm. like that is the moment when sadness starts to seep in, it doesn't leave me for the rest of the show. I remember when Osama bin Laden was killed, mm-hmm. and I've shared this with people before. But I remember online seeing that there were parties to celebrate mm-hmm. it. And, and look, I totally understand that he was a symbol of fear and terror for 
an entire generation. But it made me so sad to be celebrating the death of one of Mm. our own because he's still human, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's okay to sit in that sadness. We don't do that forever. I mean, this is one piece. Yeah, absolutely. The the comet is. And I think that's important because there aren't many, especially pieces of musical theater. um, You know, it's historical fiction for the most part, Mm -hmm. but it's still history and it's still theatrical. It all, it all kind, it all kind of comes together. This little moment in history, which is known as assassins. Because of the music, you're so right. The show is able to celebrate what makes America special and also contemplate what the tragedies are because of it. Yes. Thank you for articulating what I could not really figure out. No, no. I got there somehow. You did. You 100% (laughs) did. Thank you so much, Keela. I've had a really great time. Wow. This is fun and, you know, thought provoking. For sure. Uh, But really like super, I hate the word relevant, but you know, it's, it's, it's current. Yeah. I'll just say it's current and will continue to be current. And I urge everybody to go out and don't go out and buy a gun, go out and buy assassins. (laughs) Now available on iTunes. Everybody's got the right to some music. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. And please join our Patreon fam where you're getting exclusive content as a thank you for supporting this show. That's patreon.com backslash a musical podcast. We've also got uh, our T Public store. I mean, there's so many opportunities to participate in a musical theater podcast, and we're happy to have you here. Hey, Keela, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? So I'm on Instagram. I'm post ethnic. That's P O S T E. C-H-N-I-C. Can you explain the handle? I'm interested. Why did you pick that handle? Well, when I was when I was younger, I was like, because I'm mixed race. Um, my mom's from Hawaii, my dad's from Nebraska, and I was kind of like He's gorgeous. Well, everyone. I'm like the future. I'm like the future. Oh, thank you. I'm like the future, right? So it's like post-ethnic. But now I might change it because I think we all need to stand in our own identities, right? And really kind of advocate for look. Hawaiian representation, Asian American representation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Hallelujah. but as of now, as of now, I'm post-ethnic on Instagram. I'm also Keela Packet at Twitter, and I'm also a co-producer for A Little New Music, uh, which is a small little concert where we champion new uh, musical theater writers and performers, and, and that Instagram is A Little New Music. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. This has just been an absolute joy. I could talk about Sondheim for ages. <laughs> My pleasure. Someone tell the story. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate you. Uh, Keela, take us out with a couple bars of your favorite. So, gosh, working man born in the middle of Michigan woke with a thought and away he ran to the Pan American Exposition at Buffalo. Yeah.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.